I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Today, we are talking a little bit about uh, meditation and mindfulness and how these uh, tools can be sort of useful with kids. So uh, before I talk forever, I'm just going to invite my my guests to introduce themselves. So we're going to do our name, our pronouns, where you're from, uh, your relationship with kids, and your relationship with the topic of meditation and mindfulness. My name is Raja Carapanini. And I go by she, her, hers, and I live in Chicago right now, although I was in Brooklyn, New York, from the time my child was born until about one and a half years. And so she is two, two and a quarter now. (laughs) Yep. So I'm her parent, her umma, mama, depending on the day, whatever she calls me. And I'm also a licensed clinical social worker. And so in the past, my work has included work with um youth and emerging adults and their families. And I've also been an adult ally in in spaces for South Asian youth that are engaging as activists. I am South Asian and I grew up um, Hindu. And so I would go to a place called Chinmaya Mission um, with extended family growing up. And I began to use chanting in the mantras that I learned at Chinmaya Mission around middle school. My my personal household um, away from extended family had a lot of chaos in it. So I was using chanting every night to build my own resilience in a, this household of chaos. And I also grew up in a really predominantly white community. And so I was always using this meditation, these practices that I was um, cultivating at that time to feel more centered in this place where I've always felt like the other. I'm also a yoga teacher as well. So I'm a 200 hour trained teacher. And I use that in my work as a licensed clinical social worker with clients to build mindfulness skills. It's something that has worked so well for me that I like to use it in my healing modalities as a clinician. My name is Amanda Deering. I go by she, her, hers. I am from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I am currently here. We were talking before the recording about how we met in Brooklyn, and all of us have a connection to Brooklyn, New York. But I'm, I'm happy to be back with my family in, in San Francisco. My relationship with kids. So I have always worked with kids. I, I see it as my calling. I have been building my toolkit (laughs) uh, of working with children in a variety of of ways. I've worked with children with special needs as a behavioral therapist. I've worked as an art teacher. My training in in teaching is in Montessori early childhood. And um, I've also been uh, been working as a kids and family yoga teacher. And in general, I just, I love being around children. I think we have a lot to learn from them. I, I like finding ways of incorporating them into, into our world just as, as much as we can, rather than keeping them in a place of like, oh, children are separate. So the topic of, of meditation and mindfulness, I, I became interested in, in meditation when I was in high school. I took a world religions class. There have been a few books in my life that have resonated really strongly with, with what I needed at that time. And uh, we read Siddhartha in our class. And um, I was just 
I knew I instantly needed to learn more. So I started visiting um, Zen Buddhism centers and just learning as much as I could about meditation. And from there, you know, since since I've (laughs) been in high school, I've learned about meditation and then mindfulness in in a variety of ways and always tried to learn how to incorporate it into my life and and share it with the children um, that that I work with as well. First, I'm going to start with my name because I am not Hindu. (laughs) Um, I got the name Lakshmi when I became a yoga teacher in India. And I actually, it was with a, a yoga teacher training that I was, it was with Integral Yoga. And um, so that's where my name Lakshmi came in 2009. I have some friends that still call me Lynn and I have a lot of, I, so I'm kind of this funny person where I have Lynn's and Lakshmi's, but um, so that's my name. <laughs> and I go by she, her, hers. My relationship with kids, well, I mean, I've been literally People find this a bit hard to believe, but I started out as a ballet teacher at the age of 12. And if you talk to some other ballet people in the world, you'll find that it's kind of common. It's not an uncommon thing. Um, So, but my reason to begin teaching at the age of 12 was because I had a mean ballet teacher that would make me cry a lot. And so I just literally remember at the age of 12 going, there's just got to be a better way. And so I started teaching ballet uh, at 12. And then when I moved to New York City, uh, when I was 22, I I branched out. Of course, ballet was the the through line, but I always had um, yoga in my ballet teaching practice for kids um, because I had a very enlightened ballet teacher after the mean one. (laughs) Her name was Jennifer Church. And um, she didn't tell us, but she was using yoga as our warm up. So for me as a ballet teacher, I always had yoga within my class. So it was a it was kind of a no brainer. I actually moved to India to be an after school ballet teacher. That was the reason why I went to India. I had a, you know, an after school teaching job and um, I ran toddler classes there and and I figured well I'm in India I might as well become a yoga teacher and I had no idea the whole trajectory of my path would change and so prior to when I was in New York City I taught um, everything you name it from ballet music art gymnastics science cooking and one of the main through lines I had was uh, playgroups so I even kind of had my own little school, but my undergraduate degree is in art. I stopped being a professional dancer around 31. So anyway, and I, when I was working in the public school system as an artist in residence with like puppetry, and I was also teaching ESL, I was working with, at the time it was called Psy 6 and Psy 7, and it was just this kind of weird, it was somebody's last name and they created this system. But I was working with people children who were um, emotionally disturbed, Down syndrome, autism, um, blind. So I feel like they were my best teachers to teach me how to be a better teacher myself. So that's, so the way I relate to kids is, you know, I feel like kids are teaching me and I don't talk down to kids. I'm very up 
upfront with kids. I don't know. I always say that that's my radical perspective is that I think children are people. <laughs> like I think that a lot of times we treat them like they're this other entity um, and people will be like, I don't know. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say like, I don't know how to interact with kids. And I'm like the same way you would interact with an adult, just like use words that they understand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or explore, or if you're using bigger words, just explain them. You know, I don't think you need to really talk like that's something that my my niece in particular my uh my sister-in-law they're they always like they never used kind of cutesy words they weren't like oh you know it's a doggy or like do you want some eggies for breakfast they're like nah we always not that there's anything wrong with that but she was like i i don't feel like teaching them one word and then saying never mind there's actually another word we were just kidding about the first time um so so i th- you know i think that a lot of times we sort of like talk down to children and they are so much smarter than we think they are i always ask this this question at the beginning of every episode uh, because we talk a lot about questions that kids ask that uh, kind of catch us off guard that we're not prepared to answer so i'm curious if there's ever been a time that a child asked you a question that you weren't prepared to answer my child is definitely on the stage of asking why pretty much every other sentence. Um, and so I'm generally unprepared in the sense that, you know, we will say that we will look things up. When I really thought about this, the one thing that really um, came to me when I was thinking about the word unprepared was actually something that I wasn't willing to let go of yet. So she recently asked, so my partner is white and so my child's biracial, but she's been to India before um, and kind of culturally is already um, picking up on a lot of things that are aspects of like our Indian culture. And she asked her dad, she said, Dada, are you Indian? Like she definitely noticed something was different. And he had an answer right away um, said, I'm, I'm not Indian, um, like Amma, but I come from a family that's Indian. And it just occurred, he had a great answer, but it occurred to me that I felt unprepared as she was asking the question because I felt like there's such like binary thinking so early on, right? And that it felt like, okay, like I know this is something that I'm kind of continually working on. And in the moment, kind of so early, it felt like, okay, like I'm I'm figuring this out. And this is the first question around it. And it involves kind of a letting go for myself of kind of, as I mentioned, being really feeling like the other growing up. I mean, with my child looking so um, skin color wise, she looks exactly like my baby pictures, but in terms of her skin color, people often just assume I'm the her nanny. So the unpreparedness comes from having to, um, to navigate this world where we're seen as so different from each other, even though she's my flesh and blood. And so working on that feeling of unpreparedness is kind of the crux that I, I knew going into raising a multiracial child. Um, but certainly brought up some feelings <laughs> that helped me understand that it would be earlier than I expected and, you know, obviously perpetual. I think that that's, that's sort of, I used to jokingly call it a game I would play, but I, when I was nannying in New York City, I worked for families of all different colors. And I um, would often play the game of who do you think I am to this child right now? Because if I was with a white child, they would always, I'm, I'm white. And they would always assume the child was mine. And if I was with a child of color, they'd always be like, Oh, it's so nice. You adopted a kid. And I'm like, first of all, that's wild for you to just make so many assumptions at once. Or one time I was, I was with um, uh, a little biracial boy who was Indian and white. And I was on the on the train and this woman came and sat next to us and just started talking. And, you know, I mentioned that, he had two moms and she was like, well, that's so nice that they adopted. And I was like, 
There are literally, if you're assuming these are cis women, which I'm assuming you are based on the statement you just made, there are two uteruses in this equation. Why are you assuming that they adopted a baby? <laughs> like, it's just so, the like assumptions that people make around that are so fascinating. And I had a, a, a friend who's a person of color and they, they, had a, they have a kid who's white passing and people always think that they're the nanny almost always and yeah. they're just like i carried this child for nine months excuse you yeah. um, <laughs> but but yeah it's like a very weird dynamic yes actually i think um raja really really hit the nail on the head with the fact that when you choose to work with children you are always going to be asked things that you do not know the answer to and having that perspective of let's find out together is really just the best route to go. I would also add that working with other other people's children, it's, for me at least, always really important to discern whether something is a question I should answer for them. Because when you're working with really young children, you're, you're building constructs, right? You're You're helping them to discover the world and to understand um, how things are. And sometimes it's, it's, I find that I have to discern whether it's my place to answer that question or to direct that child and say, you know, I think this would be a great conversation or question to ask um, your family. So I think that's, that's definitely, I think the important part of that being unprepared is, is being able to discern whether it's a question for me or whether a question they, they should ask someone else. Yeah, I think that becomes very tricky, like as a as an educator, or even as a nanny, sometimes if I once I get to know a family, it's a little bit easier for me, because it's just two parents, right? So I kind of have a gauge after a while of what kinds of questions are okay for me to field and what aren't. But I, I remember when I was first working with this one little kid, um, it was like, right in the beginning of me working with him, and he needed still needed help going to the bathroom. So I was in the bathroom with him. And he, as many uh, young children are, he was very into his penis, like to talk about it a lot. And he asked me if I had one. And I was like, no, I don't. And I was, you know, and we had a conversation about how some, you know, boys have penises and some have vulvas and some girls have penises and some girls have vulvas. And we had a whole conversation about that. Then afterwards, I had to go to the parents and be like, if he tells you what genitals I have, like, this is why we were having a conversation about this, like, you know, and the parents were totally fine with, you know, the fact that I told them that, but I was a little nervous after I told him, because I like just started working with this family. And it's definitely like, uh, I think for educators, especially in the classroom, it's even or in those kinds of large group settings, it can be very tricky when kids ask certain questions, because you're like, I know what I want to say, and what like the answer to that question is. But I don't know if like your parents want you coming home from, you know, yoga class with the answer to that question or whatever. I'm making this huge assumption that I might be the oldest person. I'm 56. And I was raised in a time where we were not allowed to ask questions. Even though I was like a child of the 70s, I was raised in the 1950s because the, my I'm the baby and there's four siblings ahead of me. So and I even had to wear their clothes. So I everybody was in bell bottoms and I was in straight legs. So I always just felt out of sync. So that being said, I was conditioned to to feel myself as a child to not be able to ask questions because because of the mentality my parents did of being seen and not heard. So I would have to say in the beginning when I first started teaching that when questions would come, I would defer often to the parents to get guidance to know how to 
answer specific questions. If it was something I felt like, you know, like you were talking about, you know, genitals and things like that. If it was something that like um, I was, so now as a person that's been teaching for a long time, I'm feeling a bit more confident, um, but I always will tell the parents if any really interesting topics came up in class. <laughs> and, and I like, I like working with families in an open dialogue because I feel like my whole purpose in my life as a human is to build trust with everybody I come into contact with. So if it's okay, if I can talk a little bit of what happened the day that Trump was elected, is that okay? Yeah, totally. I had a group of, um, it was all girls. It was about eight of them. And they were sharing how they were excited the week before to have Hillary as um, president because they they really thought that this is what was going to happen. And so when they all came in, this is an age group between seven and 11, but I think the majority was around nine and 10. So when they all came in, they looked absolutely depressed. They were concaved in their bodies. They, I didn't know what, I had a feeling what was going on, but I didn't want to assume. So I, I try not to like force anybody. This is a yoga class. (laughs) I'm not like a school teacher and it's not, you know, history or something like that. This is yoga. But to me, this is a perfect opportunity to talk about the, our feelings. So when I saw how their physical bodies looked, I asked, does anybody want to tell me what's going on? And one of the students said how they were, how she was feeling at the time and about, you know, not being happy that Trump was elected. And, and then I looked around and everybody's heads were nodding in agreeance. And so when I bump up against these kinds of things that I really, myself does, I, you know, I want to be careful and I also want to, it's not a, it's, you know, I want them to be free to be who they are. So I, I go with the body. I, I have a default of like, like I said, I looked at how their bodies looked. They looked, they looked forlorn. They looked concave. And then I asked them if they could, and to be funny on purpose, I asked them, since the consensus was they all did not want him to be president, I asked them to make his face. And they all made this kind of weird pouty face. And then I asked them to to feel how it feels in their body. So I was kind of trying to bring them to a more compassionate state. Um, at that point in time, we didn't know what was going to happen. We already knew what was happening, but we didn't know, you know, it was 2016. So anyway, so I try to be really fluid and not uh, and like I said, I work with the families and I, of course, like told the families immediately after, like with the kids standing there so that they would be, it wasn't like a secret. Like uh, I just wanted them to know how I handled it. So, you know, in case it wasn't appropriate, they could, you know, guide me and also, you know, they would, it would make sense at home. So that was my, in, in all the years I've been teaching, I think the hardest question I had I had to come. So sort of jumping into the topic and first sort of uh, I sort of want to talk a little bit about meditation and then we'll talk about mindfulness. But first of all, what even is meditation? <laughs> Let's start there. I'm unsure how to answer the question of what is meditation without talking about mindfulness. 
so yeah, I think it's important to to just remember uh, what mindfulness is, that experience of bringing attention to the present moment, being aware of our moment-to-moment experience, and aware of how judgment arises. We can make space for acceptance. And I believe that (laughs) meditation is the formal practice of doing so, um, or the intentional practice of doing that. I actually um, am not always in love (laughs) with the the word formal, um, because it it, it kind of brings up a lot around for me around routine, um, thinking of things as like a a checklist item. And so I think for me, um, I think a lot about meditation as, um, again, the the conscious connection to be mindful. Um, I think a lot about the word ritual versus routine and how to make the present moment feel sacred how to just consciously connect to the present moment because at any point in the day we can shift our relationship to our thoughts we can be aware of them notice notice our thoughts notice our noticing and when i think of it that way um as being something that can be done at any point it feels like meditation and mindfulness overlap quite a bit for me i am curious of other people's <laughs> definitions and thoughts but it feels like there's quite a bit of um of overlap and particularly, you know, right now as a parent and a parent during COVID, right? So I'm with my child all day and working evenings. Um, and so um, for me, again, the idea of doing a sit at this point um, is, it detracts for me um, from the willingness to do meditation. Um, and that's my, you know, my honest, even as a yogi answer, right? That uh, when I tell myself it doesn't have to be formal, um, it doesn't have to be a sit, um, that it's still meditation. Um, I can kind of get there. So meditation is all about practice and commitment. Um, commitment to that that non-judgment awareness, your mind, and stillness of your mind. And I think it looks very different depending on how you practice. And that's the fun part about it, right? As you learn more about meditation and different ways of practicing, you learn how to incorporate meditation into different parts of your life, different times of the day, different activities. Ultimately, trying to to reach, you know, that ultimate happiness. Happiness may be not the right word, but I, I like the word contentness, just this um, complete presence and acceptance of what is. So in terms of what is meditation, I think it, it that question is really different for each person, depending on your relationship with meditation. For me personally, uh, meditation, sometimes movement, um, sometimes it's a walking meditation, um, sometimes it's just slowing down with my breath and walking in a more conscious way on my way to work. For me, meditation is is choosing a mantra that that resonates, that the story is something that I need to tell myself more of. For me, meditation is practicing that that love and kindness that I need in order to let go of past traumas. And meditation is just sitting with maybe some uncomfortability that generally, um, I want to push away. So meditation really comes in in different forms. But I think ultimately, the goal is, is to slow down and be present, be mindful, and ultimately reach that 
that complete union with everything because you've accepted it. It's funny when I was, you know, in maybe high school, I won some yoga classes in a raffle. And so that was my first experience with yoga. I had like three months at this gym and I was like, oh, yoga, I'll do yoga. And um, so I took yoga classes and the teacher very much was like, meditation is sitting in silence and clearing your mind. And I was like, I have ADHD. That is not fun. That is not I, like, it's not possible for me. It's not a thing I like to do. Like I, you know, and, and that was my understanding of what meditation was. And then I had a teacher in high school, uh, in the 10th grade, do a guided meditation with us. And I was like, this I love, right? Like for me, like that someone like giving me visual cues and like imagining something really like helped me focus on, you know, focus on something. But it was, it was this, there was this idea to me at first that like, I thought it was just like, I think there's this misconception that it's just like sitting in silence and thinking about nothing. <laughs> and, and maybe that's what it looks like for some people. Um, but I like the idea that it can look a lot of different ways. 100% Seth, I was introduced to meditation from the Zen practice. And it really is that it's sitting in silence and really trying to calm your thoughts. And it there's different techniques they give you um, to get there, but I could see Zen as not being, um, not being the style that some people really resonate with. When you gave us these questions to think about before coming here today, um, I'm, I'm a meditation teacher. I, I teach in hospitals and doctor's offices and all over the place, schools K through 12. And and the, the thing that I say first, whenever there's somebody that feels, shows me that they're afraid of, or not afraid, but they're skeptical or whatever it is that they, like, like you said earlier that somebody had once said to you, it's about clearing the mind. So I always go back to my childhood and I, you know, I don't mind wearing this for the, you know because I feel like it's more real to, to understand. I had a very uh, rough childhood. Um, there was a lot of chaos in my house, and it was met with no compassion whatsoever. And uh, fortunately, I had good therapists as an adult. Um, so I really believe in therapy. But when I reflect on, on how, like, when I was thinking, like, really, well, how long have I meditated? And then I go back to... I, as a child, would just sit and look at flowers, and I loved watching bees and butterflies. And it was this juncture of, like, my mind being able to separate from my reality at that moment of, of a very hard childhood. And, um, and I found joy and pleasure, and I felt empowered. And um, so to me, the rest of pretty much everybody stated like meditation is not one thing. I, um, I believe that meditation, we're literally born with it. It's something that's always there. Um, when I look at infants that have, we don't know what language they're deciphering the world in. We don't know what that is. And uh, basically we're watching them conform to our world. And um, so I feel like they're very contemplative. We come out very contemplative. And to me, like, to be able to go back, to have those beautiful moments, like when I meditated in Occupy Wall Street with this meditation group, and it was on Columbus Day, and it was, I don't know if you guys know what Occupy Wall Street was, but it was a 
group of people that took over Zakati Park, and I'm not going to go into great te- details about it, but but there was like you know they didn't weren't allowed microphones, so they had to do these, you know, one the the speaker would say something and. And then they, people would talk in the front and then they keep sending it back. So it ended up being like almost like a, a, a kirtan where people were chant like call and response. And, and then at the, this was Columbus Day. And then at the same time, there were these p- indigenous people that were protesting <laughs> against, you know, Columbus Day. And there were helicopters above. And I had one of, one of the most beautiful, profound of my life meditations and I was early to meditation I I even had like visuals and so yeah meditation is vast and I really believe it's it's innate like we are we 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 know this we just have to remind ourselves that we know this I think there's a lot of things that we're great at as kids and like gets taught out of us (laughs) so I'm going to just move ahead to uh, why uh, meditation is important for kids. I It's interesting. A lot of the things that have come up has um, was actually things that came up for me as I thought about this question, um, particularly because um, when I think about the question, why is meditation important for kids? I think that there's a, a lens on this that's um, a little adultist. Right. And I think all of us <laughs> clearly um, um, are coming from an anti-adultist lens. Um, and so just to kind of play a little bit about what the question is or could be, I think the question is, um, well, one, it's because children are people. Why is meditation important for all people? And I think the the other question is, if, if, you put it so perfectly because I've been trying to think of how to put this, but how does mindfulness get taught out of us. That was such a like perfect way of putting it. Um, so rather than thinking, why is meditation important for kids? I think the question is, how do we uh, like allow youth, youth and children guide us back to what's in our uh, nature as human beings? It's the question to me isn't necessarily how it's important for children. It's really to me thinking, what does it open up for me when we center mindfulness <laughs> um, for children? And I can say that as a parent, when I am allowing myself to sit with my sensations and just being what comes up for my body, I'm a better parent. And there are there is research out there that says that our interoceptive knowledge, the knowledge of what's happening internally to us, our bodily sensations, allows us to have increased co-regulation skills with our children. That parents' interoceptive knowledge predicts children's emotional regulation. And so it's really this idea that it's mutual, right? So we're modeling for young people what mindfulness is. And I often think the way that I'm in tune with what's happening with my body is by really being observant, witnessing what's happening also with my child. Uh, So it's just this like mutual back and forth between us when I think about the importance Thank you, Raja. I I really like how you brought in the importance of the adult figure as a role model. I think that's super important. Seth, you probably remember, but in my yoga classes, I would introduce the class and remind all of the caregivers that you chose to come to this class and you have the power to be a great role model and um, be completely present and be in the moment 
And if your one or two year old is wondering about, um, that's totally fine, right? We're accepting where everyone is at. And yeah, I think for for children, um, it's really important for them to have individuals in their life who are able to emotionally regulate, but also able to sit with emotions and and learn how to respond and not react. We have to be appropriate in our expectations of children, um, but meditation can really help them in developing this practice, accepting that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel frustrated and really feel what that feels like and know that that's okay. Because I think when we, when we work with children, actually I'll say it, even with ourselves as adults, some of us have a tendency to run away from those feelings or hide those feelings um, or push those feelings down because we think they're not okay to feel. So if we remember, no, it's okay to feel this, right? I'm just going to respond and not react to this emotional experience. I think that accepting of the entire emotional spectrum is is one reason why meditation is really great for kids. I think another reason is it's it's indirectly teaching them that you you don't always need to be doing. Um, it's okay to just be. I think when I'm saying this, kids already know that. Like especially when you work with the really little ones, um, it's almost like a reminder that that adults need. But as children, you know, start to go through schooling and become more aware of expectations, I think meditation is a great reminder for them that. It's okay to just be, to just breathe, to just sit still, to not need to complete something for someone else. And I think uh, from a scientific perspective, it shows a lot of <laughs> increase in focus, which is, which is really, really great for children to be able to learn and discover what it is that they're interested in and what it is that they're passionate about and gets them excited about the world and what they're motivated to do. And through the practice of meditation, they can develop that practice of focusing in on something. And yeah, ultimately, ultimately that, that focus is, is what will help them develop their passions, which is something I really like seeing kids develop. So maybe that's a selfish wish for them. I love that idea of, I don't know, when I think of the word focus, I don't automatically connect it. Like, I don't know, focus to me makes me think of like being in school or something, not like focusing on something I like, which I don't know, probably says a lot about me. You could psychoanalyze that later. But I like that idea of connecting, you know, focusing on something that you, you know, are passionate about. So, you know, I've, I've heard there's studies out there. I've read them about how when you have a child do exercise of any kind, whether it's ballet, gymnastics, tennis, soccer, just going for uh, walks with, a, with, regular, with regularity, the sooner you can do that, it builds the brain to have these pathways in the brain that as, because, um, you know, basically, you know, as we were talking, I don't really think of a child as a child. I just think of it as a person that has a brain that's building. So in my opinion, it's the earlier, like, as they, they even talk about it with language, like, and, you know, 
that's why early intervention is in the world and I'm so grateful. And that's why, you know, they started, um, they started preschools even earlier. So the point I'm getting at is I believe the sooner one can start to develop a, con- a contemplative practice, whatever that means, if it means taking five minutes to eat in silence or whatever it is for a child to kind of get them to connect to getting to know themselves, the earlier you can do that. And, you know, and yeah, sitting, sitting, maybe, you know, this is a, assuming, this is kind of assuming that the parents are meditators, but, you know, sometimes I have children I'm teaching in my yoga classes that they're the only ones that are meditating in their house. So um, they may actually be change agents for their family. If they can start early, it can help them not only with uh, dealing with, you know, situations in their childhood um, so that they can meet tough situations, like maybe bullying or whatever may come, but it's also in place. So even if in the future they only took Lakshmi's class for like one year or something, I'm hoping that their pathways are there so that as an adult, they can have this memory of being like, oh, right, I was able to, to calm myself down by just following my breath. I was able to calm myself down by finding some space in my house that I feel safe and I can just base out. And then there's lots of studies that proves that it helps before test taking. It, it, it just, you know, academically, it's a winner. So, yeah. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Um, just the regular announcements today. As always, you can follow us at Rad Child Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, if you would like to contact us, you can reach out either by emailing radchildpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to www.radchildpodcast.com under the contact section and fill out the form there. Uh, also under the contact section, you can find out info about being a guest if you would like to do that. We have lots of exciting upcoming topics. So if you're interested in that, you can check out the contact us section of the website under Be a Guest. Also on the website, if you click on store, you can see all of our awesome merch that we have. We have some buttons, stickers, postcards, and lots of great fun stuff. Um, So definitely check that out. You can also do that by going to Etsy.com and searching Radchild Podcast. And last but not least, if you would like to support us by making a monthly donation of any amount starting at $1, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Bradchild podcast you can join the ranks of the wonderful emma kai alex and sarah uh, by giving us a donation again of any amount it could be one dollar a month it really really helps us to just cover our costs and you can also get some awesome rewards like bloopers care packages personalized children's book recommendations all sorts of really cool things so definitely check that out uh, i guess that's it from me i will hand it over to crystal and rebecca Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? 
Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. So moving into sort of, and we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about kind of what is meditation even, but what are some sort of practical ways that we could use meditation in general or specifically with kids? As a yogi, there are still times when I feel like my meditation practice um, does not look the way it did at all before parenting, um, though I still feel like I'm centering yoga in my life. So just trying to honor the ways that meditation is um, incorporated into the daily parenting. For me, one of the things that's very important is to use the time that I do have to focus on the breath. And that often is taking a moment when I'm holding her because I find it the most, at this point, the time that's the easiest to kind of connect with myself. Um, So when I'm holding my child for um, nursing or chest feeding and when I'm doing putting her to sleep, which I still do. um, And so those are the times when I feel like I can breathe. I'll often do something a little bit more intentional around breath. So it might be extending my exhales, doing the visama vritti breath, or just doing something that feels a little bit more like restorative yoga, noticing myself kind of melt into the mattress a little bit more with her um, right next to me. And then I also sometimes just kind of stare at her or notice the feeling of holding her and really just kind of get into my body and feel what it feels like to, (laughs) to have her with me, to have her close to me and kind of awaken my social engagement system in doing so and really feel that sense of connection. You know, I think, I believe it was Amanda who talked about that, that union, right. And having this connection to her isn't just about her and I, it feels like a a oneness. It does feel like a union. It feels like a being at peace. And so really letting myself just be washed over. Um, And it could be like two, three minutes of the day, right? Like I'm not really doing yoga classes at this point during COVID, right? But it's the ability to just notice that I want to be in that place and be intentional um, about letting it washing wash over me while I can. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of ways to bring meditation to kids. Um, and I think Going off what you were just saying, the first is showing kids our commitment to ourselves and our well-being um, and our commitment to the practice all the time, you know, not just in response to not feeling great, but um, but all the time. And for them, maybe in the classroom, that would look like having it as a part of your circle every morning or as a re-entry ritual back into the classroom after recess. 
one of my favorite ways to teach children breath work, you probably remember this, is using the Hoberman sphere, <laughs> uh, also referred to in, in the kids' yoga world as the breathing ball, and essentially helping kids develop that construct development that we may take for granted as adults, that um, we can picture our breath as this, we, we can picture our breath, right? <laughs> Um, and for kids, that's a little trickier. So when you bring the Hoverman sphere to them and you have them put their hands on their belly and you say, okay, as the ball gets bigger, we're going to breathe in. And as the ball gets smaller, we're going to breathe out. And you can continue to do that practice with them breathing in and breathing out with that visual element of them being able to see a ball. And that can slowly then transition into an image. So when we're saying, imagine your breath, they can imagine this ball. And they can imagine it getting bigger with their breath as if there's a balloon expanding inside of their body and then getting smaller. So I think the breathing ball, the Hoberman sphere is a super helpful tool. Supporting kids with body scans is is a really awesome technique as well, especially as they're learning about their body and body awareness. And then love and kindness meditations are fantastic to do with them. So helping them to to imagine their best best self is is a great meditation tool, but also just a great tool for for their own personal development. Yeah, I think that's yeah, there's so many ways to show kids meditation, but <laughs> I think we can also learn from them <laughs> different ways of, of teaching them. I I have this thing about not wanting to repeat things too much, but I try to have the same theme running through. So this is addressing the question, like the different ways you present meditation to children. And so I feel like as a teacher, even for adults, it's, my job to capture capture their imagination and and also to kind of let them explore and maybe even come up with their own ways to meditate and um i use all forms of meditation so some weeks it depends on the energy in the room so i'll read the room um and i'm talking about like i teach literally like one-year-old's meditation so what would that be like one-year-old meditation it would be, you know, we put our legs up the wall and we just put a stuffed animal on our belly and we breathe. Or it's about if, because usually it's a, with the parents are in the room. So then I also pair them up and I'll do something together, like sitting in each other's laps. And sometimes I'll bring in, so what I do with toddlers, um, I carry through, it's like this like a through line that I take for the rest of the week to the other ages. So I've brought in little tiny, like, you know, those, you wind it. It's a, what do you call it? Um, what is that thing called? A music box. And, uh, but it's, it's, tra I got it at um, this place, but it, they're transparent. So you can see inside, you can see how the gears work. And so it's a way to capture their attention. But to me, if the, if the entire group all of a sudden is like still, quiet, focused on whatever the thing is that I brought in. If it's a, I do use a Hoberman ball too, but like, uh, so I'll use this little tiny, like a uh, 
music box and I'll, and I'll wind it and then event, and I'll go very slow. And then eventually I, I'm like, okay, so there's a song, there's a song in here. And I kind of explain how it works. And then as I build up with the winding, it's, um, old McDonald had a farm, <laughs> but they, so it, it's, you know, it's teaching them focus. It's, and then they get to all take a turn. And, um, so then it's, it's becomes more also about socialization. So then they're working together, um, for a common cause, which is if it gets too chaotic and if it does get too chaotic, it gets too chaotic because they're toddlers. But as the through line going through all the groups, you know, I've even brought in salad spinners and we'll make our own um, images that we put on a wall that we stare at. I, it, it's like a, you put in a piece of paper and then I we just do red, yellow, and blue. And then they spin it up and it's fantastic. It's spin art. And then when it dries the next week, I put it on the wall and then they, they stare at it and I have them stare for about 20 seconds and then they close their eyes. And so I don't know if you guys know this, but when you do something, if you stare at a red dot and you close your eyes, you're going to see green. So I always look for these, like how to capture their imagination, you know, for giving them like the premise of meditation. And then of course, as I've mentioned earlier, like dealing with tough issues, you know, like how could we, if you come home from your day and you're feeling exhausted. So now this is like getting into the older kids. Like, what could you do when you come home? You know, maybe you do want to have a dance party because I'm also a Kundalini teacher. So part aspects of Kundalini is, you know, dance movement, you know, shake those hands over your head and then sit down. And then, then can you sit? Can you sit and just feel your heart beat? And can you feel how your body is vibrating? And so that's just a little scratch of ways that I get at kids to tune into their own innate ways of, you know, soothing themselves and calming their bodies down. And I think it's funny because I'm realizing that when I'm working with kids, I'm using it more as something, as a response to something rather than just like as a practice. And I love the idea of incorporating it as a practice, like for example, with, you know, using it as a response, which is still not a bad thing to do, but I like the idea of incorporating it as a practice, you know. Um, but uh, a lot of times I also use like glitter jars, which I'm sure y'all are familiar with, but where I'll, you make, it's, you know, it's a combination of water and glue and glitter and you can use other things. You can find about a thousand uh, recipes on Pinterest um, and you have the kids shake up the jar and then they just sit and watch the glitter fall. And uh, I, that's another, another sort of practical thing that I like to do and that kids tend to be interested in. Again, it's that idea of like bringing something that like you were saying, Lakshmi, that they're like focused on and just, you know, bringing the attention to that focus, I think is really cool. So shifting a little bit, but I want to move on to mindfulness a little bit and talk a little bit about what is mindfulness? I guess the only thing that I have to add is to is this, I think mindfulness is also looking at the same thing with, but, but with different eyes. There's... Nothing but wonder in children. <laughs> so just reiterating the point that children are inherently mindful. So mindfulness became a little weird sounding to me, even though I practiced it and I loved it before, when I read, I think it was in The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, and he talked about the word usage sounds funny and that the mind is full. So sometimes, you know, because kids can kind of get like tripped up on things like this, 
including myself, this kid, this 50 year old kid. So I do do mindfulness practices and, you know, I've brought in as, you know, with the permission of the families and even in my adult meditation classes, I bring in like something they can eat like a strawberry or a raisin. And I have them. So I'll have three strawberries and the first strawberry, they can just eat it. I just let them do what they normally do. They just eat the strawberry. So this is older kids. It's not toddlers. This is like, I've actually done this. I've done this with as young as four or five. Um, it depends on the group. So then the, the next strawberry, I ask them to, before they put it in their mouth, to not chew it, to feel the texture of the strawberry, feel the temperature of the strawberry, and just kind of observe the strawberry in their mouth. And then as they slowly bite into the strawberry, um, the juice is releasing. And then, you know, I explain it's intermingling with your saliva that has digestive juices. I always love going into science. I just think it's great because it's, you know, it's a great opportunity to bring more in. And uh, as long as they're up for it. And, um, and then the third time, I just let them do what they want to do. And then we talk about it. We unpack it. And um, I got that from the book, uh, uh, I think it's called Living the, the Catastrophe Living or something by John Kabat-Zinn, I think is his name. And, um, and it was a raisin that he used. And um, but anyway, the point of all this is, is it's kind of a fun, juicy, delightful thing to show that you can pay attention and and find more, find more than just inhaling the strawberry. And so, and then I can, I can use that, that conversation that they actually unpacked, because I don't want to tell them, I want them to tell me. So they've unpacked it, you know, what was the difference between the three different ways of eating? And when you came to the third, what did you choose to do? Did you choose to just gobble it up? Or did you choose to, to savor it? And also, then there's also language that comes in, like what is savor? (laughs) But anyway, so then I can apply it to like, well, you know, if you're having a tough time, like you're thinking about, you know, your family said you're going to go to the beach and you're feeling impatient. You're feeling this impatience because you've got to get to the beach. But your family is telling you, oh, well, you know, you got to wake up, you got to eat breakfast, you got to brush your teeth, but they don't want to. So I try to bring, like, I have these kind of little Dharma kind of talks or, um, little satsangs, however you want to think of it, but um, little lessons and try to like, how do you apply the strawberry to life? And like, so, so yeah, if we just could blink our eyes and we'd be at the beach and then blink our eyes and come back, I'm sure that would be a great time, but it's the anticipation of this and the feelings of, so, oh yeah. So what are you going to wear? What are you going to take? Yeah. Don't forget the sunscreen. And then, ah, the journey there, what did you see? Who did you see? Could you figure out who else was going to the beach? If you're in your a New York City kid, you're looking at the subway or or you can even look at traffic and see who else has beach gear in their car. It's just kind of so it's it's a it's a it's a teaching tool so that kids can like develop their own regulations, their own to be able to uh, when they feel hyper or impatient, how can they themselves tune into and be mindful of their own it's really just joy they're just excited 
And impatience can be this, oh, come on, come on. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> and, but there's joy all along the way. And then on the way back, there's joy. Maybe if you didn't want to leave the beach, how can we leave the beach and take the beach with us? Can you take a shell and then put it in a prominent place in your house and 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 be have a moment to do yoga nidra next to the shell or something like so that you can bring the beach home and then maybe in the process of coming home you can draw what you saw or or just you know talk about it for me that's mindfulness for kids i love that just uh moving on to sort of some ways that we can incorporate mindfulness uh with kids so lakshmi got to a a few techniques um Mindful eating um, is is a good one. The you mentioned the Seth the mindfulness glitter jar, showing kids with that like visual representation of how our thoughts can be very harried, and then we can slow them down through breath. But bringing a mindful approach to all of our senses, so going on a listening walk or um, just focusing on sense of hearing while you're sitting. What do you hear? For um, the the physical, the proprioceptive sense, focusing on our body and where we are in space, dance is huge for that. You know, having a practice of of dance um, as well as yoga with with the children um, to help them develop their sense of their connection to their body and space, especially since their bodies are continuously growing. Mindfulness of emotional experience is a big one. You know, it's children are learning how to connect words and express what they're feeling. So, you know, the book Anatomy of the Spirit by Caroline Miss is a great resource to understand what what different emotions feel like and where they express themselves in our body and then help children to connect. You know, maybe that stomach ache isn't isn't you know hunger <laughs> maybe maybe that stomach ache is is nervousness about a project or a presentation and helping them to identify the the physical ailment that's associated with with various emotional experiences another tool i like to use is is the frustration wheel so basically with preschoolers because i was a preschool teacher for a while You'll teach them frustration, what it feels like when when you get frustrated and they each have an opportunity to imagine a time when they're frustrated. And then they have the opportunity to identify ways that would help them in that moment. So we would either draw pictures or cut out pictures of various things they could do. Maybe it's Washing their hands or going into the reading center or getting their 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 glitter jar from their cubby. Maybe it's just like taking a deep breath or getting a cup of water to drink and focusing on the process of drinking water. But any of the ways that they identify would, would help them in that moment of frustration just to become more present. They would put that on on this wheel. And then we would attach a little arrow to it. And whenever the child is having an experience of being frustrated, maybe they'll identify it themselves. And I've had kids come up to me and say, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm going to go get my frustration wheel. 
<laughs> which it's 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 really awesome to to see that development. Um, or maybe you you identify it for them and you, you can tell them, oh, I, I feel like um, maybe this is frustration that you're feeling. Is is that what you feel? And maybe they'll say, no, it's not frustration. It's anger. Or maybe they'll help to redirect that on their own. But when they are feeling frustrated, they can go and get their frustration wheel. That process of identifying, okay, what can I do to be present in this rather than running away from it or dealing with it in a not appropriate way? And you can do that for for all the emotions, right? What do I do when I'm happy? Oh, I should go share this with my friends. (laughs) What do I do when I'm angry? What do I do when I'm sad? So yeah, just accepting that emotions are a part of our life and helping children to identify the word for what they're feeling and then what they can do with that emotion. Yeah, I think, (laughs) you know, the same theme around um, children being the ones to teach us. I think I oftentimes talk to other um, parents and say like, so what end are we teaching our kids like meditation and mindfulness when we really are coming from a place of understanding that our our children are like whole and complete and perfect as they are. We can just build on what they're already doing. So for instance, with my child, so yes, we'll do a lot of naming emotions. I'll also just thank her for pointing something out to me, which kids do all the time, right? And I will say thank you for noticing that Um, Thank you for observing that and sharing that with me. And she will now tell me the same thing. Thank you for like, thank you for noticing. And she thinks of noticing as a skill because it's an everyday thing that we're um, conversing around. So starting early in that sense, as we really, as a society are, we really prioritize verbal processing. And we oftentimes with children will be talking about what's happening quite a bit. Um, And I think there's, um, importance in communicating what we will do to them, right? And to their bodies. Like I will be changing your diaper. I'll pick you up now. And sometimes there's just a lot of importance and um, mindfulness and just being silent, right? So the other day we were walking and through the trees, you could see the sun and and as a like perfect ball of sun. And it was just, it was gorgeous, right? And you could actually look at it because it was through the trees. And so my child pointed and said, there's the sun, because we don't always actually get to look at the sun, right? And I had, the, like, my first urge was to be like, oh my gosh, look at how round it is, and like how it's glittering, and and then I just stopped. <laughs> it was like, I see it, and we just were in this moment of watching the sun, not having to think about this experience of sensing <laughs> the watching the sun um, together. So I think just being silent is... <laughs> And a really important thing that we come up with all these other ways of teaching these skills, right? But sometimes just being silent together is the primary way of letting ourselves just use our senses. I love that. And I think that I value that a lot when I'm with other adults. I think there's something about like being able to be in a space with someone that you're, you have the relationship with where you can just like enjoy a moment together in silence. And I think as a nanny, I feel pressured to always be talking to children. I feel like I'm going to look like a bad nanny if I'm not always narrating everything that's happening. Right. <laughs> and, and so I think that that's a really interesting perspective. And I, I love that idea of just being able to have these silent moments. And it's funny because I find myself like right now um, the parents are working from home. And, uh, and so I find myself like, I will have these silent moments with kids. And then as soon as the parents come in, I'm like, I feel like I have to start talking to them. Well, it's, I think it really is this like primacy on verbal processing, right. And this idea that we have to teach kids language, we have to do it early. And, but 
there's this both and to that, right? Like we could narrate the days. And also there are times when we can probably pick up on, oh, wow, this child's like completely in their senses right now and just let it be. And I think a lot about the, I don't know if anyone's read the book by Alison Gopnik. It has this idea of being a carpenter as a parent or a gardener. A carpenter would be someone who is building to a plan. So who has a, an outcome in mind for their child. Um, and a gardener is, someone, gardener is someone who's just like planting seeds, who's thinking about how to build a nurturing ecosystem for a child. And that's often how I think about how, how mindfulness can be incorporated. This idea that, um, that I'm not teaching it to, to have a human being who's better at taking a test, right? Those are, those are benefits that we can study around the benefits of, mind, of meditation and mindfulness. But I'm doing it because, because I'm really thinking about being child-centered and how my child can just kind of be who she is. And like I said, it's inherent in who she is. So if we um, think about mindfulness as like, what are we actually doing to strip away mindfulness rather than how can we teach it to them? I think it's really the the mindset to come from. So we do a lot of, we do a lot of nature time. And, you know, for those of you from Brooklyn, we did free forest scroll early. And I think that's really how we noticed, oh yeah, no, she's got this. She can get lost in things. And then we also at home, we don't have very many toys. Like for an hour this morning before we took our walk, she played with tissue paper that she had found. You know, I mean, it's just like a bag of old tissue paper. <laughs> and we like, we didn't bother her. And the thing she came up with for a whole hour was, it was like so much fun to watch. And that's, it's like letting them go and not interrupting sometimes is also just teaching mindfulness and just building upon what they're doing already, right? Yeah, just letting them get lost a little bit. I think it's so interesting because now I work for a family who's very on board with that. They're like, listen, if they're doing their own thing, that's great. We want to encourage that. And that's how I feel. Like, I think it's important um, for us to learn to be in our own space and not have someone over our shoulder like, oh, are you playing with a block? That block is square. That block is green. Like, oh, it's okay. So like some, sometimes it's great to do that. And sometimes it's okay to like, I, I sort of balance my day where I have like kind of intentional learning moments. Like I have a theme every week. So this week we're learning about the five senses, right? And I have, you know, all kinds of different activities about that, but we might do like three activities a day. And then the rest of the time, you know, they can do their own thing. We'll go for a walk. We'll, you know, do whatever. Um, and I was working for a family at one point um, and it just ended up not being a good fit because they, I would do that where I would let the kid just do his own thing. And they would be like, no, you need to be talking to him all the time. And I was like, I think it's okay. Like sometimes it's okay for, for us to just be. And I think it's like you were saying, I think there's a lot of pressure on people who work with kids to be just narrating things 24 seven and weird expectation too. Cause like, that's not how life is. I, I, t I teased my wife. I was, when I was learning French, when I moved here, I was like, I wish I had somebody just talking to me in French all day. That would be great. But yeah, I think that, you know, it's important to just have those moments to be. And I, I love that. So yeah, that's one of my pet peeves too, this constant like chatter and like having to explain everything. So I also feel as a teacher, you know, the conclusion I came to was to be fair, like parents become parents, but they don't always know how to play or how to be with a child. You know, there's this, for, you know, for whatever reason they wanted to be a parent, then there's this part like, oh my gosh, okay, here we are. And now what do I do? And so I really, as a teacher, I try to model, like, I feel like it is part of my mission statement or if I had one, <laughs> but to, to like help navigate, like how to be with a, a 
a, a developing brain. And, um, and so I will point out like, you know, yeah, we need space. We need space for, for people to catch up, to have their own opinions. And, um, at one point in time, it was called wait time. Like as a teacher, you needed to give a child wait time to, to answer a question. So I love that, that you guys on, like brought that into the fold because it is a little pet peeve of mine that there's all this like explaining, but children are really smart and they need space to just kind of let those wor- new words or new ideas or new concepts to just kind of move in their head and be felt in their body. So, yeah, I just wanted to say, yeah, I'm with you. So I'm curious, you know, when when we're talking about yoga, you know, which, you know, obviously y'all have a relationship with yoga, it ties in a lot, you know, there's a lot of common ground between yoga and meditation and mindfulness. I'm curious when sort of yoga is cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation and what your thoughts on that are. So So first I wanted to, to give a nod and honor the folks that um, are really leading the way, I think in some of these things, some of these questions you're asking. So Susanna Barataki and the, um, the folks that run Yoga is Dead, that's a podcast, have really done a lot of work to bring the um, South Asian voice to the forefront and the idea of um, what cultural appropriation looks like in yoga. And so I just wanted to say that a lot of my ways of articulating um, are really just from um, what I've read from them. So I think the, the the thing that's really central here is to think about how um, how our own power comes into play, right? So remembering that there is, uh, that cultural appropriation exists, right, if there is some type of systemic power that we hold. And I think about this a lot of the question of um, people talking about being anti-racist. If you think about what it means to be anti-racist, it's a perpetual commitment to doing things that are anti-racist. It's not this, um, oh, I'm not racist idea. Um, It's that I have to work to be anti-racist. And I think that's the same thing as cultural appropriation in in the sense that we have to continually work. Those people who are not South Asian have to continually work to um, examine where um, they're being appropriative, um, where their power comes into play. Um, There's some concrete things that people can think of, such as um, do South Asians actually show up to your space? I oftentimes just think about my own felt sense when I'm in a yoga studio. Do I feel like a foreigner here, a foreigner in a culture that is my own? And I think what's also very, very central here is uh, kind of how I've been talking about how can you take take stock of where you can fit in a a mini meditation into your life as a parent? Where can you um, have mindfulness be part of your every day with your child rather than thinking of um, kind of discrete skills that we're teaching? I also think the question of cultural appropriation comes in here because how can you really teach um, or be mindful with your child um, in a way that's actually authentic to you? Like how does your own religion teach mindfulness or spirituality or your family culture or what is it about your own daily life that is mindful? So rather than kind of borrowing from other cultures, there's something really special about actually thinking about you and yourself and what you're doing and what your family has been doing to, to be mindful. Um, so leveraging what you already have and kind of recognizing that there there are, again, this is a human experience being mindful. Um, so there has to be things that are, um, that feel authentic to you, that feel part of your everyday um, that can be leveraged. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing that and for doing the emotional work of uh, telling us about that. <laughs> 
But at, at any rate, before we say goodbye, um, I would just like to give you the opportunity to share any resources that you might have uh, about meditation or mindfulness. And like I was saying, it could be for kids, adults, books, whatever, and websites, whatever you want. Well, if people are looking for uh, therapy services <laughs> uh, that incorporate mindfulness, um, you can always go to my website, which is um, com. I also, again, want to kind of plug Yoga is Dead as the podcast um, and Susanna Barataki. And I also really, when I was in Brooklyn, really loved working with um, Jessica Phillips Lorenz. <laughs> and so Jessica does some classes for both parents um, that are working on mindfulness in addition to um, in addition to children as well. Yes. So I think the first is The Whole Brain Child by Daniel Siegel. He gets at something that we've just, well, a few things that we've discussed today. The first being the importance of doing the work as adults. Um, and second, the difference between teaching about emotions and then helping children to like feel that and sit with that and accepting that that's part of emotional experience. Also, In Praise of Slowness by Carl Honore has a great anecdote at the beginning um, about reconnecting in the moment with, with kids and not rushing through childhood. I'm trained in Montessori education, so The Absorbent Mind is fantastic. One of those books that, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, there's a few books in life that have resonated really strongly with me, and this is one of them in terms of um, how she views childhood and taking that child-centric approach. And then I think, yeah, as a resource, just go into nature. That's <laughs> sit with yourself. And that's really the best resource. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I'm going to add kids books. Part of my life was to like teach teachers how to teach, you know, art or whatever activity. And so I, I just go forward like with that thought in mind. And so I often will look in their classrooms and just see what they have and and the books that I look for, not necessarily are yoga meditation books, but like The Hungry Caterpillar and um, Oliver Jeffrey's Up and Down, which is a really great book about friendship. And I think it's Adelia Marley, um, Bob Marley's, one of Bob Marley's kids wrote Every Little Thing. And I love that book because, you know, they changed it to um, apply to kids' lives, like in the playground, and and it has the refrain like "Don't worry about a thing, cause every little thing is gonna be all right." So, <laughs> so then I play the music, and then we have a dance party afterwards. So it's just kind of nice. So I look for those books, like you know, that they already might have at home, you know, that they don't, or it's in their in their classroom. As far as quintessential yoga books for kids, I love um, Susan Verte. Um, I Am Peace is one book, I Am Human, and I Am Yoga. And I've even read those books in my adult classes. I'm sorry I'm not mentioning the illustrators of these books. I'm just mentioning no, that's okay. the writers. But um, I love the Mindful Monkey Happy Panda book by um, Lauren. I'm, not, I'm dyslexic, so I'm going to have A-D-L-E-R-F-E-R. Adelfer, maybe? And then in that same uh, grouping of books for older kids by Carrie Lee McLean, Moody Cow Meditates and Moody Cow Learns Compassion. 
And when I get into the older kids, I just kind of, I bring in my chakra decks. I bring in, you know, I've even brought in like these, I have these beautiful tarot cards. I don't talk about tarot or anything like that, but I like use them because, you know, when they pull a certain card, I can go to the book and there's a message there. And um, even I have mudra cards. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just scratching the surface of all the books that I can't tell you everything because it's a lot. I just, I just love going to the library and I peruse the bookshelves and I find seasonal books that apply to just basically being a human. I wanted to mention the book Finding Om, which is one of the few children's books about yoga that's written by a South Asian and the child's actually biracial, indeed an African. Deepak Chopra has a beautiful book, uh, You with the Stars in Your Eyes. And it's a, it's a, you know, about an, a little Indian girl, like a South Asian, yeah, like, and, um, and, and her, her, I can't remember the subtitle, but it was something, her connection, connecting to the cosmic consciousness. And it's a real, it's so beautifully illustrated and, and that I love that it, you know, it's with a, her grandfather, <laughs> the child. Before before we wrap up, if there are any other personal things any of you have to plug, like uh, websites or where also where people can find you if you want to be found on the internet, on social media? On all my social media, I'm Lynn Lakshmi Pidel, and that's really about it for social media. But um, I do work for Integral Yoga Institute, and um, I teach three classes a week for children on Zoom with them. But because some people don't have the finances right now in the time of the pandemic. I also do Facebook Live so that, um, and I put a donation button if they want to add, but so I teach Mondays uh, toddlers at 11, uh, Tuesdays I teach three to six-year-olds at 3 p.m., Wednesday seven to 11-year-olds at 3 p.m., and then I teach prenatals slash a level one on Saturday um, that I also have been starting to incorporate postnatal in. So that's with the Institute. And then personally, I am a teacher that somebody ever wants to message me. I am, I do privates and I teach family yoga and yeah, I'm available. (laughs) I am not a huge social media user, but I did recently create a LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn with my name, Amanda Deering. It's spelled like the animal, a deer, and then I-N-G. <laughs> well, thank you so much and for your time and for staying a little bit late. Um, I really appreciate it. It's been a really wonderful conversation. And I feel uh, very lucky to have had spent this time with all of you. And remember, stay rad. I'm Tefra Jemian, the producer and host of the Yeah Podcast, a young adult lit review podcast focusing on amplifying the diverse voices in YA literature. Join us as we dig into the world of young adult books, reviewing new releases, revisiting old classics, and exploring what YA lit can teach us at any age. Discover the world of YA Lit through exclusive author interviews, book reviews, genre smackdowns, and more. The Yeah Podcast. 
available through the Upgrade Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Dungeons. Dragons. Canada. The Multiverse Theory. Corgis. Queer representation. French accents. Reconciliation. Angels. Demons. Squirrels. Moose. Moose and squirrels. Sorcerers. Dinosaurs. Forests. Giants. Rogues. Warlocks. Plains. Sewers. Lavender. Natural Toonie. A Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Right here on the Upford Network. <laughs>